Hey, Emily. Good morning, Mark Rolfing. How are you, Emily? I'm well, thank you. I'm looking forward to your live reports from the Ryder Cup starting Monday. Is that what I hear? Yep, starting Monday. I think the first one is, uh, let's see, I think it's like 11 o'clock, or no, let's see, Central Time. Yeah, it'd be around 11 o'clock your time. That would be Hawaii time, so yeah. Eastern maybe, time. Maybe 10 o'clock. Maybe 10. Uh-huh. Yeah. Somewhere but people will see it on the mainland at uh, what time would that be, Eastern time then? Four, four or five in the afternoon. Four or five. Okay. Well, it's Mark Rothing I'm speaking with here on the Emily T. Gale Talk Story Show. It's Emily T. Gale Talk Golf today with Mark Rothing, a longtime uh, NBC Golf Channel broadcaster but i'll tell you what mark i you know i just read a quote from usa today where is it here that they called you the uh, that your rise to the top of network golf television is a unique and intriguing story and i agree and and i i'd love to spend a few minutes talking about that a little bit how you played on a what the asian tour for a couple of years in 73 and 74 and how you got into broadcasting because you've done so much more than broadcasting. Can you well, give a little background? Yeah, you know, the, my broadcast career, Emily, was a total fluke. Um, you know, you got to remember, it began back in the late 80s. And back then, uh, if you hadn't won a major championship in golf, you had no chance of being a network golf analyst. You know, the analysts were Lee Trevino and Kenny Venturi and Bob Goldie and Bob Rosberg and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus. And there was no Gary McCord and there was no David Faraday. And so what happened to me um, was literally a, a total fluke. And it was because I think I had kind of started establishing myself in Hawaii and started the Kapalua International, which was a postseason event on the PGA Tour. And um, I was still playing, you know, quite a bit of competitive golf in Hawaii and was still pretty good at the time. So I played in that tournament every year. It was, you know, the biggest names in the game. And then a few local guys played every year, and I, and I played every year. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, in 1985, which was the third year of the tournament, the sponsor, Isuzu, put up a car at the 17th hole, the par three. That was never done back then. The sponsors just didn't do that kind of promotion in tournaments, but they did. And sure enough, who wins the car? Me. Um, You know, I hit one shot, basically, on the 17th hole at the Bay Course. So they brought me up to the booth, and uh, it was Vince Scully and Lee Trevino. I'll never forget. And Trevino basically started out the interview by saying, well, you're not that good. How did you do that? You know, this that you're just not that good. Uh, and I said, well, I don't know. Maybe it was luck. Maybe it was whatever. But I ended up staying in the booth for about 20 minutes that day. And the producer of the show was a guy named Don Olmeyer, who at the time was the executive producer of NBC Sports also. And um, he said, wow, you were really good in there. He called me that night and he said, how would you like to try out as an on-course commentator next week at the World Cup in Palm Springs for, on ESPN? And I said, I don't know. You know, I, I couldn't understand why people would care about what my opinions were on it. Anyway, he was convinced uh, that we should try. And I ended up going and trying. And after the week was over, they offered me a job, man. I became a full-time on-course commentator for ESPN in 1986. How about that? Well, and then the story, the reason I like for you to tell more of the story even is that so often, you know, life happens in between all the plans we make, right? And I try to encourage people to realize they can they can let their life fall into some wonderful opportunities. They, you know, allow those opportunities to come into their life. You created that event. It became part of the, the, the PGA Tour. You got into marketing. I've I've loved. I've been reading a lot more. I've known you for twenty plus years or more, and there, every day I learn something more as I when I Google you. But I love the influence that uh, Tosh Rohr had with you, and if you can just talk a little bit about that, how somebody can have a real influence in your life and and kind of get you on a direction that 
really was a, a wonderful direction for you. And I always tell people, you know, Mark Rolfing had a lot to do with that Maui basketball classic that you watch on TV. So weave that into the conversation, if you would. Sure. You know, um, basically when I started at Kapalua, which was in 76, um, you know, my first job there was washing golf carts. They didn't even have a job open as an assistant pro. So I had to kind of work my way up through the ranks of literally washing golf carts and then became the assistant pro. And and Tom Rohr was um, running Kapalua at the time, and he liked um, kind of what what I sort of brought to the table in terms of energy and enthusiasm. But he also liked the fact that I was pretty humble and, and I, I didn't try to go too far too fast. Um, I recognized what my role was, and that was to be an assistant pro. And, uh, but what he started doing was when important people came into town, um, he would take me out of the shop or the burn, whatever stage it was in my career, and he would have me play golf with the important people that were coming to Kapalua. And there were a lot of very important people coming back then, uh, not the least of which was Arnold Palmer, who was designing um, the village court at Kapalua. This would have been 1977. And um, Arnold kind of took a liking to me. I was his partner the first time we ever played together, I remember, and I happened to play great that day. And every single round of golf Arnold Palmer played there for the next 10 years, I was his partner. And um, Arnold kind of took me under the wing and um, in a lot of ways helped guide me. He had Mark McCormick, who was his super agent and also a couple of uh, condo owner back then. He had uh, McCormick kind of helped guide me in the beginning of my announcing career when that all happened. And, you know, I was playing golf with the president of the United States, Gerald Ford, you know, ultimately. And. I, I just got to meet a whole lot of people, and I still believe that um, it was the relationships early on, being in Hawaii, that, that kind of got me going in my career. None of this would have happened to me if I hadn't been able to develop those relationships. Well, the thing about it is that it wasn't just golf that you were contributing, because you and your wife, Debbie, you know, created Mark Rolfing, or the, your sports your sports production company, right, which is how the... We uh, Maui yeah. Classic basketball started. Yeah, that's how it started. So we we were then televising the Kapalua International on Maui, which was the second week in November, and the first week in December we had uh, started by 1985, I guess it was a senior event at Kanapali. So we had two events on the same island about about a month apart, and we started realizing that once all the television equipment came to Maui, it was just sort of sitting there, um, not not doing anything. Over on the west side of Maui, they were actually storing it at Kapalua before it went down to Kanapali. So um, Shamanad had started a small little four-team tournament back then. Um, they, of course, had the amazing upset of Virginia back in 1983, I think it was, but it still was a tiny four-team tournament over in War Memorial Gym in uh, Wailuku. And uh, I said, you know what, why don't you guys think about retooling this whole tournament? We'll help you. Uh, and the next thing you know, uh, we concocted an eight-team tournament um, that was to be played in Lahaina Civic Center. That's where all our TV equipment was over on that side. And, and we knew we could fill that gym every day. And... Uh, off we went. So basically, we ended up with three out of four weeks of live sports coming out of uh, out of Maui, and that's how the basketball started. And and a lot of that came out of that Shamanad uh, defeating University of uh, Virginia with Ralph Simpson, and Merv Lopes was the coach, right? This little small college in Detroit and uh, in Hawaii beating University of Hawaii it was like, wow, it wasn't televised. These these things need to be televised. Exactly. But, you know, the- it's. Yeah, yeah go ahead. about it was that um, once we started the 18 tournament and moved to the west side, all the top coaches in the college game back then were golfers. Um, you know, whether they were the, the you know best coaches in basketball in the country or not, they all loved golf. And so we were able to recruit all kinds of teams to come to West Maui because of the golf. 
And, uh, you know, when they weren't practicing down in, at the Lahaina Luna gym or doing other things, you know, related to the tournament, they were always up playing golf. I remember getting phone calls from the basketball arena saying, you know, where's the coach? You know, he's, the first game's ending early or something, you know. You know, we could barely get him off the court, uh, golf course back then. But the, the golf and the golf draw was what literally drew the basketball teams and then ultimately huge fan bases coming to Maui. Uh, it was because of the golf uh, attraction. Well, you you know, the, the, the range of contributions you have given to the to the game of golf, not just in Hawaii, but across the country. You've been such a visionary. You've got a project going in Chicago, your hometown with uh, Tiger and, and uh, Obama. But it's all around junior golf so often. What you've done here in Hawaii for Hawaii State Junior Golf Association with Mary B. Porter King, those are the things that I admire so much about you and love to keep learning because you do pay it forward. I mean, you've been wonderful to me. You've been to me in the way that you've given me support because I kind of, you know, once I said to you, hey, I picked up a camera and got around the senior skins because I wanted to be around Arnold Palmer, <laughs> you know, and you said, I know what you're talking about. Exactly. And I like to encourage people to realize they can create opportunities. And I think you're such a, a, a great example of that, of someone who took so much talent that you had, not just the golf, you wanted to stay in the game, but you were able to, in a holistic way, along with your wife, Debbie, create so much good for the game of golf for Hawaii you know, you really brought that aloha swing that we all see every year with the Kapalua, the Tournament of Champions, which is what it's become, and then over to Sony and then over here on the Big Island for the Mitsubishi Electric Championship, we all lie. And, and what a, what a, as you look back over that, and I know it wasn't like, oh, you know, you have a subtle way of showing and sharing your visions because you shared visions with me, and then a couple of years later I see them happening. But talk a little bit about that. that um, journey of yours to be able to contribute in so many ways well it, it was a journey and it was an unexpected one there's no doubt but there you know you're giving me too much credit i think which is a lot like you are in the entire uh your entire life um so many people have helped me over these 40 years of this journey and not the least of which is you and um i'm going to give you a little plug here because um you know, our relationship is interesting. I don't have the same relationship with everyone in the media all over the world um, because there's a couple of things. There there are people that I don't necessarily trust in terms of being able to, you know, kind of open up and talk about things. And there are, are people that aren't really grateful about maybe the time you give them or, or whatever. And you have always been both of those. You've always, you know, I've always trusted you implicitly and you're very grateful for the time that we get to talk together and for the things we get to explore. And I really appreciate that. And I think just having a lot of people like that out in Hawaii that have, have helped. Um, you've, you've been a big part of the growth of golf in that state. There's no doubt about it. Well, I appreciate that. And I was, I was really excited, you know, last round Thanksgiving when you sent me a text and said, Hey, guess what? I'm, I'm going to be on the, be uh, broadcasting live at the Rocket Mortgage Classic in Detroit, of course, my hometown, and you know how much I care about that. And and you're from Chicago. We both are great believers in PGA Tour events, being in urban settings. And, and you went to Detroit for the Rocket Mortgage Classic and had a lot of on-air uh, time and, and got into the city. You've been there before, but share a little bit about that and also the Alley Challenge in Detroit being played at the Buick, uh, where the Buick Open was played for so many years, because it's such an important, I mean, Michigan is one of the most busy golf per capita states in the country. Yeah. Over 800 golf courses. So talk about your experience in Detroit. Well, I have always loved Detroit. You know, you you spend a lot of time propping up Detroit and and, uh, trying to, you know, get across to people and communicate to them what a great town Detroit is and what, what, how many great people are there. Um, I started first going to Detroit all the way back in the late 80s because the sponsor at Kapalua was Lincoln Mercury, which was a division of Ford Motor Company back then. And so I started going to Detroit, um, and, you know, I, I played a lot of golf in downtown Detroit areas. Um, I covered tournaments 
from Flint to, um, you know, the senior players out in Dearborn. Um, but I had forgotten or I guess didn't realize that there had never been a PGA Tour event within the city limits of Detroit until Rock and Mortgage went to Detroit Golf Club. And um, there's, there's just a big difference. I mean, that's what we're hoping to do in Chicago. It's the same thing in Chicago. All of the great high-profile golf in Chicago is out in the suburbs, and that's kind of the way it's always been uh, with Detroit. Even the U.S. Women's Open uh, and Senior Open that uh, I've been to out at Indianwood and Lake Orion. Um, but there was never anything in downtown Detroit, and I am a firm believer that the future of our game uh, and, and the thing that's going to keep us sustainable is two things. One is uh, investing in our kids, and that's why I'm so involved in junior golf. We've got to invest in the kids and get them interested in the game at an early age. And the other is we need to get into urban areas. It's, this cannot be a game that is, um, you know, just a, a typical rich white man sport, as they say, out in the suburbs. Um, and going into the Detroit city limits, the Detroit Golf Club, was just so attracting to me that when the schedule came out for last year and they said, you know, what what does your summer look like? What do you kind of want to do? And I said, well, you know, I've got the U.S. Open in San Diego and then I've got Travelers up in Connecticut. And I said, after that, you know, I'm going to head west, whether I go all the way back to Hawaii or Montana or whatever. And Detroit is right on the way. Let's put Detroit on the schedule. I can't wait to go. And so that was um, – that was a great experience for me. And our set, as you saw, was right by the putting green there at Detroit Golf Club. It's open in the back, and uh, there's a car pad there where all the people going to the first tee or the tenth tee, they all walk back and forth there. And I think more than any other experience I've had in this game, I, I didn't get the reaction um, anywhere like I got in Detroit. Everybody was stopping and yelling up at the set and, Thanks, Mark. Thanks for being here. You know, so glad to have you. Um, they're just so proud uh, of their city and so proud of of really the metamorphosis of Detroit and the downtown area and, and just having the PGA Tour event there was such a big thing. I, I was I was really impressed, and I got up and went out and took pictures with a lot of people, I'll tell you. Well, yes, and you even got a, a picture with uh, my friends Paul Forte and uh, Nancy Cavell Forte, who over here in Hawaii for a month or more every year for the last 20 years. They they are real supportive of the event you put on with the uh, Champions Players, the fundraiser for Hawaii State Junior Golf Association. They buy a lot of those high-end auction items because they, they believe in junior golf too. But, yeah, we, I heard from a lot of people they were glad to see you, and it's fun to be uh, – connecting you with uh, WJR and, and Paul W. Smith. You're going to do some reports in the Ryder Cup. So that's that's really important to me. And then the LE Challenge, being at Warwick Hills, where the Buick Open was for so many years until the auto industry got out of the golf in Michigan. What a wonderful event with all those Champions Tour players who played in the Buick Open years ago, getting back to the Flint area. Yeah, the players are so good at giving back and, um, you know, I have really sort of emulated what they do as much as I can when I'm broadcasting. You know, it was kind of too bad uh, that Paul and his wife couldn't come up onto the set because of our COVID protocols. You know, we're only allowed a few guests, and, and I had already used up uh, my limit for that day because I was sitting there, and I kept looking out the back and all these people down below, and I was kind of talking with them. They're probably 15 or 20 feet away and there were two little young brothers uh probably i'm going to say between six and eight years old they were just mesmerized and and saw that this was where tv happens and everything else and i couldn't help myself i said to our stage manager go get those two kids and their parents and bring them up here and she went out and got them and the two of them got to come up and in a commercial break, sit down in my chair and get get their picture taken up there like they were on TV. And um, it, it's just I, I watched them after they left the set, and, like, that's an experience they'll never forget. And I think they will be cemented as future golfers forever now. And so anytime I can do something like that, 
um, it's highly satisfying for me. And, you know, I, I think I've learned how to do that really from the players and particularly the Champions Tour players that give so much. They are so good at it. And it's Mark Rothing we're speaking with, who's NBC Golf Channel a commentator on course at uh, at Golf Live. What are you calling it? Uh, the Ryder Cup Live? What's Live your, from the Ryder Cup. Starts starting on starts on Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern time. And um, what I love, Mark, is, you know, when you're talking about juniors, I was a junior golfer, you know, Jack Berry, who you know, he's covered over 100 events, was president of the Golf Writers Association of America. And he had a big influence on me when I was a kid as a junior golfer. In fact, he started... Uh, junior golf programs or, or golf programs with PGA pros in Michigan back in the 60s and 70s. He was a, a spark and an advocate for women, as you have been, uh, women in golf, women in broadcasting. And I, I love that. I think I saw a quote of yours once where you said, at this point, I'm a cheerleader, instigator, dot connector. Am I going to be the guy who figures it out? Maybe not. Can I be a factor in finding the right people to figure it out and get it together? The answer is yes. And I've always felt I've been a little bit of watching you and learning that about weaving people together and making making things happen. So you've you've been a mentor to me in, in many ways, and I, I appreciate it so much. And I just, you know, I, I think about uh, you and Debbie. We've never talked about it on air, but would you mind just talking a little bit about your angel babies that you have been doing for so many years and the Mark and Debbie Rolfing Charitable Foundation? Yeah, this is a foundation we started about 20 years ago, and um, it was kind of a fluke. Uh, we we had a friend who was um, an adoption child placer in Montana, uh, where we have a, a little summer cabin that we go to, and um, she called Debbie one day and said, "There's a medically fragile child, um, you know, at the hospital and needs some help, and would you guys be willing to take care of this baby for a few days." And uh, Debbie's answer right away was, yes, we would. Um, and so we, we took the child in and uh, ended up keeping um, the baby for about, oh, three weeks, I think our first one was, Angel Baby, we called her. And um, it was such a satisfying experience that we decided that maybe since we didn't have kids of our own, that would be something that we could do. And so we started the foundation and uh, basically created a program that uh, we conduct mostly in Hawaii, but some in Montana, where we take in medically fragile babies and keep them until they're adopted, um, which usually is very complicated if there's drugs involved or fetal alcohol syndrome, or maybe sometimes even in the case of race, where there was an adoption set up, the birth mother had wanted to give up the child, didn't want to um, parent the child, and so an adoption got set up. And then uh, the next thing you know, there was an issue with race, let's say, uh, that was not known. And so um, we've done this 31 times now, I guess, Emily, um, which is a lot. And um, we've got a 10-year-old now that is actually in our legal custody, DJ. Um, I think you've probably seen him or met him. He's a fine young man. He's 10 years old now. And uh, so he's keeping us pretty busy for a couple our age to have a 10-year-old. And so uh, it's certainly different. But, wow, you talk about satisfying and something that's fulfilling, having him and trying to figure out how to, you know, help him get educated during the middle of a pandemic when I can't even do this new math myself. Um, it's <laughs> It's quite an interesting challenge, but this has been probably the most satisfying thing I've ever done in my life is this um, this um, foundation work, and uh, I hope to keep going for a long time on this one. Well, you and Debbie are such wonderful partners together in life and with everything that you do for others, and, and you certainly you do, and you do it. I mean, you've had some challenges. You had cancer a few years ago, very serious case of cancer and that seemed to be a real inspiration for you I, I read something where you were talking about suddenly you had a sense of urgency about some projects that had been on the board particularly this one in, in Chicago with Tiger and uh, Obama and, uh, talk a little bit about that and how you've come through it and how grateful you are and now you're heading to the Ryder Cup was your first Ryder Cup in 1991 that's what I love is you have such a history with these events yeah you're, you're, you're not new and you, when I see a lot of your your 
you're commentating and they'll show clips of things in the background of you way back there in the 90s, you know, following Tiger or something. That history means a lot. Yeah, if you go on golf.com or pick up the September issue of Golf Magazine, you'll see a big story uh, by me and about me at the 91 Ryder Cup, um, which are, it's a pretty cool story because I tell some some incidents that occurred there at Kiowa that nobody really ever knew or understood, and it, it's a pretty fascinating story. Uh, but, you know, the Ryder Cup has become my favorite event in golf. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I think this upcoming Ryder Cup in Wisconsin is going to be just an absolute corker. Um, you know, the U.S. is, once again, very heavy favorites. They've got Every player on this team, all 12 players are within the top 21 of the world rankings. I don't think that's ever happened in the U.S. So on paper, it's a very strong team, but they could get beat again because uh, Europe seems to somehow rise to the occasion in the Ryder Cup. But it just, um, I was there last week, and I mean, my heavens, I got to spend half a day with Steve Stricker, the captain, and just the experience that somehow I'm able to get now after all these years is just, I mean, I'm just so privileged to be able to have access to the players and the captains and, and to be able to do this. And, um, you know, the hours are going to be real early next week once the Ryder Cup starts. Uh, for example, on Friday morning and Saturday morning, I will be on the first tee going on live at uh, 5 a.m. Central Time. So for everybody out in Hawaii, um, you know, that's going to be, uh, what, 11 o'clock at night, I guess. Um, they'll be just going home. Uh, but all and, our listeners on the mainland can watch it at... Yeah, they can all watch. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's on at 6 a.m. Eastern prior to the first tee time, which is 7.30. So um, that that is going to be phenomenal. And I just, every morning I wake up and, and pinch myself and say, ah, you know, how did this happen to me? And so much of it is because of Debbie Rolfing. I mean, literally, particularly with the foundation and, and all these kids, I mean, she's the player... I'm the caddy. Um, she somehow keeps things so organized and under control that I'm able to run around and do all the stuff that I do. And she's totally supportive. I mean, you know, a, a golf project in Chicago that's basically a, a passion and a love and not a money-making proposition at all, you know, would seem like, wow, why, why would she be in favor of that? But um, she knows how important it is to that area, you know, Chicago is is uh, my Detroit for you. Um, I, I think this thing is going to happen. The Obama Presidential Center started construction this summer, and so I think you're going to see the golf course work starting soon. And, um, again, there, you know, all I really have been is the cheerleader. I've been the dot connector. There's a whole lot of people there doing a lot of work, and I just keep pushing them. Well, I concur about Debbie Dean right there because I always say behind every good man is a very good woman who's a good at detail. And, of course, Debbie and her real estate uh, and also Kapalua Hotel, your involvement there. So she's been a very successful businesswoman who gives back as well. And that's what's so neat is that she's got such a, a good heart and also can be a good partner with you. And, I've, you know, I'm just wondering when you were at Whistling Straits the other day, talk a little bit about – what the layout is like. I heard you saying it's the largest build-out at a PGA event. And also, if you would just talk a little bit in 1991, I mean, people, the, the difference in the technology now, just about reporting and the media center and how different it is for the media that are covering from the old days where they were using, you know, when computers just typewriter. came out or that, that evolution. <laughs> yeah, well, they had typewriters back then. Yeah. Uh, there were no grandstands at all on the first tee at Kiowa in 1991. And next week in Whistling Straits, when you turn in, you're going to see a first tee that looks like you're walking into Aloha Stadium. It, it's massive. I have no idea how many people are going to be seated around the first tee, but it's going to be huge. They've built out something like 3 million square feet of hospitality space and concessions and grandstands and just all this stuff. It, it is just remarkable. Uh and it's going to be the first really big golf event um, in a couple of years that is going to go totally back to where where we were before the pandemic. Um, the Ryder Cup has become the most compelling event in golf. Uh, it, it is just it, it's so important. I think in some ways it's more important 
to some players even in the major championship. Shane Lowry, um, who just got a captain's pick on the European side last week, uh, is from Ireland. And when he got picked for the team, he said it was the proudest moment of his career. The proudest moment of his career. Now, this is the guy that won the Open Championship, the oldest golf tournament in the world, and, and one of the four majors. He won it in his home country two years ago. But he still says the proudest moment of his career was just making the Ryder Cup team. So it shows you how important this Ryder Cup has been. And, folks, you know, spend as much time as you can watching this thing in Wisconsin next week because it is going to be so intriguing. Americans are huge favorites, but they could get beat again by Europe. It's uh, Mark Rothing. We're speaking with NBC Golf Channel. It's the Emily TKL Talk Story Show. And Mark is in Montana right now. I'm here on the big island of Hawaii. So oh, I love the wonderful world of technology. But let's, you know, kind of you know, set the stage for people. You know, this is an event where there's only four groups are on the course. I heard you talking with Bobby Curran this morning on uh, ESPN Honolulu. And, and that is really a visual image that you set. You know, only four groups out there and probably 50,000 people in attendance. Yeah, so Talk that, about that, that setup and the pod system that Steve Stricker as captain is setting up. I think that people, you know, I think going into the event would find interesting to be observing. Well, there's only, there's only 12 players per team. And so um, the way Stricker is going to manage his team is basically an offshoot of, of what Paul Azinger uh, concocted when he was the captain back in 2008 in Louisville. And what he does is he divides those 12 into three groups of four. Um, and he puts these groups together based on, more than anything else, personality traits, uh, things like that, maybe games that are somewhat similar and match up. Uh, so he's going to have these four, three groups of four. And um, that, that is the way his pairings will get made. Um, they'll all go out and practice in these little groups, these little pods, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, see who's playing well, see who's going to pair up with whom. Stricker's got a lot of challenges because he's got players on his team that don't get along, uh, not like the Europeans do. They're, the Europeans are a very close unit uh, in team golf. America is not at all. Uh, and in particular, Stricker's got this Brooks Kepka bryson DeChambeau feud that's going on that I don't know how he's going to manage. Are you going to put those two guys together in the same pod? Is he going to split them up? Uh, which I think would divide his team. So there's a, a lot of behind-the-scenes Stuff. But once the competition starts, uh, people are going to be shocked at how massive the crowds look with each group. If, if you've got 50 or 60,000 people out there, that means you're going to have 10 to 15,000 people with each group. So just one group of golfers is going to have that size of group that's going to move around the entire course with that match, watching that match. Uh, people that actually are lucky enough to go to the Ryder Cup will find that it's not a tournament, first of all, that centers around the 18th hole because in most cases, not even half the matches will make it to the 18th hole. So no use sitting there all day long waiting for somebody to get there. They may not. Uh, and you have to kind of stay with a match to kind of get a sense of what's going on with that match, the dynamic of it. Uh, and so most of the people will be following a specific match. And it's, it's going to look great. This course is right on Lake Michigan. You're, they're going to look out at the lake, and you're going to see it on TV. And it looks like the Pacific Ocean. You look like you're in Ireland or Scotland because it's a very um, linksy-looking course. Now, it doesn't play that way. Even though it's right by the, the huge lake, which it looks like the sea, uh, and it looks like a lynx where you bounce the ball all the time and you bump and run it. This is a peat die course. Uh, and you can't play that way at all there. Uh, you have to play the ball up in the air to these, these greens that are just absolutely diabolical. It, it's going to be a very intriguing week. Well, you're starting your reports on Monday, uh, uh, Mark, uh, live from the Ryder Cup, beginning Monday, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time. So you have one week because the Ryder Cup is September 28th to the 30th. So I think we're going to get some very intriguing <laughs> reports from you. And I it, talk a little bit about the I love the intrigue of the personalities and everything, like uh, Phil Mickelson's participation this year. You know, he kind of gave Stricker a, a, a pass on having to designate him as one of the captain's picks. You know, that was good, I think. 
and and Tiger also being assistant captain. But he's not he there. Or will... He's not an assistant captain physically. Uh, no, he will not be there. Um, you know, this rehab that he's going through is a really tough one. Uh, this was a very serious injury that he occurred in this car accident, and so he's not really able to travel, but he is going to be with the team a lot. They're going to do a lot of virtual connecting with Tiger, the greatest player of all time. But make no mistake about it, Emily, uh, th- this is Phil Mickelson's team, I believe. Uh, Phil is going to be a captain, even though he doesn't have a great Ryder Cup record. Um, none of the Americans uh, of the last 20 years do because, you know, U.S. has got beat a lot. But uh, Mickelson is a leader. He's a very dynamic personality. He likes to take charge. He likes to offer his opinion on things. And I think even though Stricker's the captain, I really believe in a lot of ways this is Mickelson's Ryder Cup team for the U.S. Oh, that's that's very interesting. I, Phil Mickelson, I'm a fan for because years ago I went to the AT&T. I had a press pass. It took me a couple of years to get one. But then I it was the year that uh, Kevin Costner played with Tiger. And I had gotten to know Kevin over here when he did Waterworld. So I thought, oh, if I get there, maybe I can, you know, get close to them. And he let me be part of their entourage, you know, at at the um, the AT and T. But I wasn't. I was kind of the low run on the the press, the media. So we weren't invited. I wasn't to a lot of the parties. But Phil had one. He was a new pro at the time, and he had one over at Spanish Bay. And so I went over to that press party that was there and bless his heart, man, he came to every table, sat and talked with us with his then fiance. And he it was just I, I remember it so well how he took the time to talk to each of us. And that kind of thing sticks with you for years, you know. And I think if people like Steve Stricker, I first uh, saw Steve Stricker when he played in Tosh Roar's um, event here, the King's Cup. Remember that when he had it years ago? I do remember that. Remember it. The Low Beach Resort, you know, and I I think if people really watch and kind of get to know these personalities, which many are, but even the, the non-golfer or the recreational golfer, it's fascinating to really get to know these players, you know, by reading about them and hearing about them. And I, I love the fact that Tiger and Phil are friends now, so-called friends, right? And wasn't yeah, it in it was the 2016? Together. It was really yeah. in 16 at Hazeltine where Tiger and Phil were both uh, or Phil was on the team and Tiger was an assistant captain. That's where they kind of bonded. Um, and it reminds me uh, a little bit, Emily, of Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. Um, they yeah. didn't really, they didn't really feud. I wouldn't say there was no social media back then within the Nicholas Palmer era. But if you think about it, the fans, you know, you were either a Jack Nicholas guy or you were an Arnold Palmer guy. You didn't root for both of them. You rooted for one, one or the other. And, um, I think in a lot of ways, that's the way it's been for Tiger and Phil throughout their career. Uh, But 2016 at Hazeltine changed things, and they've now become friends like Arnold and Jack did uh, at the end of their careers, and they just started doing a lot of appearances together. And I think over the next decade or so, I don't think you're going to see Tiger Woods playing much competitive golf. I, I think this injury will keep him from that but he still is going to be a very big part of the game. And I think you will start seeing a lot of Tiger and Phil together in the next I, I I love it. It makes such a difference because, you know, good sportsmanship is such a big part of the game of golf. And and maybe this will be the, the week that uh, Bryson and, and Brooks can kind of put all that behind him and, and, and show the world that there's ways that you can work through these things. Um, it, it's, going to be wonderful to watch you. We're talking with Mark Rolfing, NBC Golf Channel. He'll be starting his Live from the Ryder Cup beginning this Monday, uh, 5 p.m. or 5 p.m., 4 p.m. Eastern Time? That's correct. Okay. And uh, last last thoughts of things you might want to share with our, our listeners? Well, um, get out and play. You know, there's no substitute for playing. Um, the game is flourishing. You know, everybody thought this pandemic – was going to ruin golf, but in, in, uh, all it did was make golf more attractive. It's an outdoor game, very easily to social distance. Um, and last year was an incredible year when it comes to golf. All the numbers were up, new participants in the game, more kids, more women, more golf balls being sold. That's all good, and it's it's great to watch it on TV, and, uh, and I'm happy that people will be able to listen to Mark Rolfing next week talking about the Ryder Cup, but 
the most important thing I think for you all that will be listening is after you're done listening, go out and play. Even if it's nine holes, get out there. Uh, golf, after all, is a participant sport. Um, it's not like watching the NFL. You, can, you can't go out and do that uh, after you've watched an NFL game. But get out there and play, folks. And I always uh, like to tell the story of uh, when my father was about 83 years old or something, and we hadn't played golf for a long time, and just the fact that we could go out and play. And I remember him saying, I don't know about you, but I like playing these forward tees. <laughs> you know, and we we played nine holes, but, you know, I grew up as a junior golfer. I tried for the LPGA a couple of times. It was, you know, no possible way, but I went and tried, quit for 20 years, came back, became a runner, came to Hawaii, discovered all these great golf courses, got involved giving clinics and picking up the game again. And Montalani Resort helped me. I went and played. Actually, it was when Arnold won the senior skins at Montalani Resort. I remember telling Ed to say, I'm going to start playing golf again, Arnold's golf course design partner who was always at the skins with them. And, and uh, you know, the game, I as I watched over the last two years, because we're all sitting at home a lot more than normal and watching golf, I, I can't believe the tears I've shed for the gratitude I have for having learned the game as a kid and, yeah. and loving the game. And I tell young kids all the time, I was even teaching my neighbor the other day how to putt on the sidewalk. He wants to get into the game. and. It's just if you learn it as a as a kid and it's part of understanding the game, you can work it in. And I can't believe what a gift it's been for me in my life of the things that I'm doing. And it's because I learned it as a kid. It's tough to learn it when you're older. But go out there and give it a try. I haven't played golf for two years. I've had a bad arm. In the last couple of weeks, I've been able to go hit chip shots over at Waikoloa Beach Resort, which has been, you know, such a – they've been so supportive of me over the years and, of course – Scott Heads, who's the VP of Operations at Waikoloa Beach Resort, used to be up at Treetops in Michigan, but he's had so much to do with advocating junior golf and recreational golf in, in Hawaii. And a couple of comments about Scott? Oh, there, there's Scott's one of a kind. Uh, I love that guy. and um, he, he is a Hawaii guy through and through, and he has done so much for the game. You know, he's not a flamboyant kind of guy. You know, you don't read a lot of stories about him in the newspaper. He just does a lot of work behind the scenes, um, you know, and I'm glad that uh, – I'm so glad to hear, Emily, that you're at least chipping some balls and, and playing. Uh, I'll, I'll leave you with one story. We've been talking about the 91 Ryder Cup, um, which was the war by the shore at Kiowa, and it was, you know, one of the greatest Ryder Cups, if not the greatest one of all time. But uh, a story about that one is on Sunday afternoon, after the U.S. had won in – and just an unbelievable, dramatic finish. Um, the U.S. wins. There's all this celebration, you know, 25,000 people surrounding the 18th green and just mass bedlam and everything else. A half an hour after that ended, within one half an hour, the announcers, including me, Roger Malty, uh, Johnny Miller, I can't remember, there were four of us, we went over to the first tee and teed off. We actually played nine holes. Cause, and we played, played the back nine because we all just couldn't stand not getting out to play after having experienced that on the same day. They couldn't do that anymore. They don't let you do that anymore. Oh, wow. But That's kind of short. On the big Ryder Cup course after the Ryder Cup ended on that Sunday afternoon. Well, one more story I would like you to tell. You know, I don't want to leave without making some mention of the LPGA. My goodness, what a – what a great tour the LPGA is. And the Sohan Cup recently, uh, to see Michelle Wee, you know, I've always been a great fan of Michelle's, and you have been a great supporter and mentor and confidant for Michelle since she was 12 years old, right? But how proud you must be. I mean, I just love the way she has conducted her life. And it gets some comments about Michelle and the LPGA. and, and Yeah. You know, I love Michelle. I always have. I went through my ups and downs with the family. Um, I think when she all, was, Many did, right? Yeah, I, I started with her when she was 10. Um, we had a down year in 2000, and oh, I can't remember what year it was, but when she was 12, um, her parents got upset with me about something. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and so I was kind of on the outs for six months. Then everything was fine for a while, and then it happened again right after she turned pro for about six months. But, um, you know, now I just, I love to see she's a mom. Um, 
she is a wonderful golf analyst. I've worked with her on Live from the Players uh, a year ago, but right before the pandemic. And we actually worked together on the PGA Championship at Harding Park. So twice I have been on the set with her. Uh, I, I can't believe how good she is. I would love to see her um, to say, you know what, uh, my competitive days are over, uh, and I'm going to be a TV star, which she would be. Um, the LPGA is just such an underrated product. Um, I really believe that there's a day where the LPGA and the PGA Tour will be under the same umbrella. I hope so, because right now the LPGA has to compete with the PGA Tour. They compete for air times. They compete. Yeah. And, and it's difficult for them. But people have no idea how good these players are. I, I saw a stat yesterday, Emily, um, about um, in B Park. And they have now just concluded a whole uh, series of research data that was sponsored by KPMG, which is kind of like ShotLink on the PGA Tour. There hasn't been a lot of data on LPGA players over the years. But last year on the LPGA, Indy Park, in the 10 to 15-foot range, putts, 10 to 15 feet. I'm not talking about three-footers or four-footers. I'm talking about 10 to 15-footers. She made 61% of her 10 to 15 foot putts. Nobody on the PGA Tour even came close to that. She is literally the best putter in the world. People talk about, oh, Ricky Fowler is a phenomenal putter. Jordan Spieth, uh, you know, and, and Kevin Nahn. Yeah, there, there are a lot of great putters. None of them are as good. And if you put them head to head, they get beat on putting by NB Park. That's quite a stat. That's a stat that recreational golfers should remember because when they think they should make every 10-foot putt, right, just to realize that the best players in the world don't even make half of them or no, whatever percentage. Yeah. Yep. And, and that, you know, it's wonderful to see that. Daniel Tucker, the golf club out of Honolulu, Daniel does a great job. You know, Ron Syrak is, is, of course, covers the LPGA so extensively, and he does some wonderful reports with Daniel, as you do too. And, you know, it's such an interesting tour to watch. I, I realized myself that I hadn't been paying a lot of attention, but I have the last couple of years. And, of course, I always followed Michelle because I've been a big fan of hers. But I love uh, your positivity and your, your sense of wanting to encourage people to, to learn the game, watch the game, you know, just have fun with it. it. It's just such a fun game, you know. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate having been around it all my life. I, I, as I say, I watch these golf films on Golf Channel, and you and I both know when Arnold and Jack, like you're talking about their relationship, I saw their relationship during the senior skins. I had always been an Arnold fan. I, fan. I was not a Jack Nicklaus fan, but, boy, I fell in love with Jack and Barbara and saw how Arnold and Jack had such a wonderful, kind uh friendship with one another when they were at the senior skins and it was so neat to see and i I love that that we can talk and and share those kind of things and people learn the history of people's relationships because they have a whole lot to do with the game of golf yeah i mean it's interesting when you look at jack nicholas uh you know he was like the villain for a while uh you know everybody loved arnold palmer so much that when nicholas burst on the scene and nicholas was quite a bit younger than arnold uh, you know, they didn't like Jack, you know, and he, he didn't, he didn't look the part physically. I mean, they, they openly called him Fat Jack. Yeah. Which horrible, you know, Fat Jack this, Fat Jack that. And so I'm so glad to see that, that things have changed. Um, and I don't know, I just, I, I look at golf and I look at the rewards that people get from being involved in the game. Uh, and it doesn't matter what you shoot. Um, I just hope that as we go forward and the, and the decision makers, um, you know, make the decisions that need to be made in the best interest of the game, I hope they consider making the decisions for the 99.9% of people that play the game recreationally. This nonsense, Emily, about, oh, we've got to roll the golf ball back or it's going too far or we've got to shorten drivers or we've got to do this or do that. That involves 0.1% of the people, um, and those are the top players in the world. Forget that. What about the other 99.9%? I haven't heard an average recreational golfer ever say to me, you know what, I'm quitting the game, Mark. It's no fun anymore because I'm hitting the ball too far. 
nobody thinks they're hitting the ball too far. Um, yeah. It would be a huge mistake to roll that back and not let people enjoy the fact that they can hit a golf ball a long way. So um, uh, we put so much attention on the best players in the world when really it's the other 99.9% that, that we ought to be thinking about more. And I love that about your, when you're doing commentating, too, is you are focused on the best players in the world, but you always have a way of working in addressing the recreational golfer. The last story for me was that I met Arnold Palmer. He played in the Grosjeel Invitational, which is a little island in the Detroit River. He was an amateur, and he was in the Coast Guard down in Toledo. But he, he really decided to become a professional uh, golfer when he won the U.S. Amateur at the Country Club of Detroit. Yes, he did. And and so I think I was about 10, 11 years old or something when he, you know, was playing in a local invitational golf tournament. He smiled at me and said hello. And I just, you know, that magnetism and for all my life followed him. So that's the great thing about these these sporting events. We all have our players we love and our commentators we love to watch. And, and you're certainly one of them for me. And I, should, I, gotta, I appreciate the time you've given me this morning, Mark, as always. Please give Debbie a hug for me. And look forward to watching you on on Mark Live from the Ryder Cup beginning Monday. You got it, Emily. Eastern. Okay. Smart Keep up the good work and uh, see you when I get back to the island. Take care. Aloha. Yeah, aloha. Well, again, I'm so grateful to Mark for how much he has been a supporter of what I've done over the years when I picked up a camera and wanted to cover Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and got access to tournaments and and I know the game and, and boy, what I've learned since then. And I'm going to keep learning and keep uh, exploring the opportunities to mentor other, particularly junior golfers, to not only uh, play golf, but, but to stay around the game of golf because there's so many opportunities. You know, not everybody can be a professional player, but there's so many opportunities in the game of golf where you can still be around it and have a have a good life. It's the Emily T. Gale Talk Golf Story. And I'm uh, delighted to share. This is the first interview I've done for a while, so it's good to get back in the saddle and, and start uh, doing more interviews and talking golf. Take care. Much aloha to everyone.